Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Builders Build podcast. I'm your host, George Poop. Today I have an awesome guest, Scott Tomlinson, who's the founder and CEO of Choir Group. So Scott, tell us more about Choir and more about your background. Thank you, George, and it's great to be here. So a little bit about me. I started my career back maybe 25 years ago on rotation program in big corporate America and decided after seeing how everything was happening back in the 2000s that more money, more opportunity, and motivation was happening really in the startup level. And I jumped ship and over the last 10, 15 years or so have been doing various startups. And I'm now on my fourth with Choir, as George mentioned, and we're really lucky. We happened to get in this space and started it a little over a year ago, focused on how we can change sustainability for homes and commercial buildings in the green space. And suddenly everything has catapulted up now that energy savings and carbon reduction have become front and center. So it kind of landed in our lap. And it's an amazing company that we put together, an amazing team that we have, and we're really excited about it. Yeah. And, and Scott, like you mentioned clean energy. Why clean energy? Now, are you seeing the trend that's happening around the world? So that, did that convince you to go into clean energy? So I think it came in like the, the ideas behind clean energy have been kind of twofold, right? You have those that really push because of the environmental impact. And then you have the need because there simply isn't enough energy as the world approaches 8 billion people. And fossil fuels and others generally are necessary for 80% of it right now. But if we want to keep and not have blackouts and we want to give third world countries the opportunity to have power, clean energy is the only way to go. It's actually cheaper and more sustainable in the long run, whether you're looking at wind and solar as traditional or the more likelihood and need of, of nuclear. And so the timing just fits. The world has an energy crisis going on from supply mm -hmm. that meets the demand. Yeah. And that's driving clean energy more than even environmental. Mm -hmm. And I think, Scott, like 20 years ago, there was a clean energy push, I think, during the Balkan bubble. So what's different about clean energy now compared with like 20 years ago? Well, I think even if you take it farther back, when we look at like first solar that was put on the White House, that was during Jimmy Carter's time. So you're looking back into the 70s when we started having gas issues at that point, really always driven by, by dollars. But I think at this time, the change is the technologies have advanced enough. Solar actually is much better. Storage is, is getting much more improved, moving from lithium even to vanadium. And we're seeing that the, the technologies behind the ability to use it, move it, transport it, et cetera, have just improved in, in the last five years over the last 50 and so I think that's driving it. And that's really good to see. We're only in the infancy of that, though. Mm -hmm. The reality is the next 100 years is going to be vast, vastly different. Than yeah. yeah. So you mentioned it's your fourth company. So how long has Choir been around? And what's the story of like starting it? So Choir Choir's actually only been around since May of this year in 2022. But if we go back a year... We actually started a hardware side as well that focused on adding things to the home and to, to businesses for the breaker panel and for uh, the circuit panel. And that, that company, Inerna, is still going strong, still very focused on the hardware and software that's required to manage those devices. But it came about in working with NVIDIA on how do you put some high-powered compute on the side of a home so that when you have a community or microgrid, the home can actually be a gateway. And that kind of drove it because if you think about it, the grid today is not going to be upgraded probably in our lifetime significantly to support what is needed. So the home becomes and buildings become absolutely necessary for the transport of energy through and around and it needs high power compute. So it came from the discussions with NVIDIA and we created a neural net and 
Love where it's going to create the devices and the hardware to support that part. And then Choir, we came about and it was like, hey, um, first off, software and hardware are vastly different when you're building two different products, right? Mm -hmm. But how then can we look holistically at everything in a home, everything in a building, everything in, in a grid system, software only, that can help support those types of hardware devices from clean tech to carbon reduction and tracking to energy use and even understanding what, you know, your supply chain does for your carbon. And I can go into that. It's actually quite an interesting, you know, if you kind of look at how do you compute a school's carbon footprint, mm. right? And this is where choir started to evolve to. And most people come back and say, okay, let's see it's energy bill. Let's see it's HVAC. Let's understand, you know, the air conditioning, heating, and other things it's doing and lighting. And most people would say, okay, that's it. And then I can, I can deal with it. The reality is for a school, for example, you have transport, you have students to and from the school and teachers and what that evolves. That's actually a carbon footprint of the school. It's the reason you're going and going, you know, getting to it. Food supply and where that supply is coming from. Is it coming from sustainable farming or is it coming from overseas? All of that comes in and that's what Choir's technology focuses on to give a real auditable understanding of someone's and something's carbon footprint down to a granular level. And it's, it's really interesting. I mean, if you think about it, the U.S., mm -hmm. schools and universities actually emit a majority of carbon compared to homes and businesses. It's, it's truly amazing to see the, the, the true carbon footprint of things. Mm -hmm. so that's where Choir started and that's where we're going. It's, it's really exciting because we're going to see a 15 to 30% reduction on clients who use it. Okay. Okay. That's super interesting. I think, Scott, I think one thing about Acquire, it's super interesting, I think, is go to market. I think for experienced founders, go to market, it's something that's so different. So tell us more about your go to market strategy with Acquire. Yeah. So I think this is, and this can lead into some of the conversations that we've all had on raising money for startups. And, and I think there's a myth and a reality to it. A lot of times everyone looks at what can I get to a number of users? What can I get to have a monthly recurring revenue? And all the metrics start to be based on that, which in reality isn't true for everything, right? If you're not a social application. So we look at it as the best business model is one that demonstrates the users making money or saving money, and then the company makes money off of it. So on Choir for the Residential, we're absolutely a shared savings model. If we demonstrate to a homeowner that we can save you $500 to $1,000 a year, we're taking 25% of that. And again, that's auditable, demonstrable, and, and it's clear to the homeowner that they're saving it and build them through the utility for us to, to, to take advantage of it. If you don't save someone money, I think this is where subscription models are coming in to be quite painful these days. And mm -hmm. why we're seeing churn with things online for streaming like Netflix and Hulu, et cetera, and where others are kind of taking off because the first thing that happens as we're going through this recession and a global madness on, on macroeconomics People shut off those five, $10 ones right away. They yeah. see what they're not using. It doesn't save a ton of money, but in their thought process, they do, right? And so that's why with energy, to get people excited, you got to gamify it up. Okay. And so our model really says, hey, I'm going to start saving money because I'm really excited about actually turning off my TV. I mean, that's, who would say that, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is people do. And aside from parents walking around flipping off light switches, the reality is I think everyone cares about energy but no one understands it until they get the bill. Right. And so we're trying to change it that you understand it prior to you getting your bill and you make adjustments to it. And so our business model is that. On the enterprise side with carbon tracking that we're doing with communities and schools and towns, that's just a straight up enterprise standard. But the goal there again is that it's demonstrating 
a reduction in carbon use and a reduction in energy use. And then there's more incentives to everyone to do that. So all around companies want to be profitable, but to get profitable, you need to create an excitement around it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing over the next two years. Okay. And I think for fundraising, Scott, you're also, you're, you're also doing something different. I, I'm assuming you're not raising money from VCs. Instead, you're raising money from limited partners, which you call LPs. So tell us why yeah. that approach. And yeah. So I think one of the first things a startup needs to do is get a first client before going to raise money, right? If you can show that you have revenue before investment dollars, you are well ahead of the game and you have people coming to you. And that's what we did. And so we actually have and are hitting seven figures before we've even taken $1 and put it into the bank from an investor, right? And obviously that saves you on, on a bunch of equity and also a bunch of headache, right? I think generally if you use VCs, in my experience over the years of, of I think we've raised probably around 500 million throughout all of these, these firms and most were VC, you're hitting them like dominoes, right? And you're doing... 100, 200 calls, hoping for the, the 10 to come through. And it really becomes more of a nightmare than a dream. And I think a lot of reasons startups fail is because they go that round and they just get flustered, they get tired. What we did is, yeah, you, you look at family funds, you look at strategic investors, you look at those that when you want to just take that amount to get you that 18 month runway, you have to go to, to I think, the, the family funds and the LPs that just generally have a more sincere approach to wanting it to be successful. And don't get me wrong, George, I think at the end of that, when you do a series A, B, or C, absolutely the institutional money is, is, is there, right? But the VC dynamics, is, as we've talked in the past, is changing, right? The, the due diligence that VCs do is different than PEs do and family funds do, right? And you can sit back and say, this is a billion dollar company, it's gonna do awesome, well, you're probably missing out on the fact that this is a company that's already making seven figures and with the right investors would be a several billion dollar company as well, instead of saying it's going to happen just overnight. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's where VCs need to change. Yeah. Tell us more about like what's happening with VCs in 2022 for our founders who are not very familiar with the VC space compared to before. So I think they're, they're, a lot of people right now think that they're going to slow down. I don't think they're going to slow down investments at all. I think what they're going to do is take a different approach to how they're doing their diligence, right? And if we look at the past, which we all know, past success with founders breeds a lot of VCs giving you money without even a pitch deck, right? Yeah. We've seen that just recently with, with A16Z and, and, and Newman's. And there's a lot of examples of that where because someone has done something before they get it, I think that's going to change. I, I think for most VCs, they're going to start to look at the team overall and say, can this team execute as one check, which has always been there, but as a second check, are they absolutely capable of executing in a short period of time to get to revenue? And I think that's where a lot of VCs in the past have ignored. They've generally said, okay, let's toss a bunch of money on it. Let's hope the revenue comes. And if it doesn't, well, hey, we invested one out of a hundred did well, and we made our billion. Which brings me to this, the next point of, I don't think that VCs, the majority of them need to say that this is absolutely going to be a quick billion dollar and the others can fail. Because let's say we, you know, VC puts into a hundred and five do awesome and 95 fail. That's been a model that's been there forever. Why not have, if you do the math, 50 or 60, 
doing 20% less than those five or doing half of those five still do the same results and we're creating more innovation and more companies that can actually be spectacular. And I think that's where VCs need to start to move and, and understand that not everything is a billion dollar exit, mm -hmm. um, which also breeds that not everything needs to have a term on it of 10 years. I think that limits a VC's capability to pick the right ones for further advancements. Some technologies take 10 years to do mm -hmm. and it's ridiculous, right? And it actually hurts the, the LPs, right? To say I'm done and out. I mean, imagine if the ones that early invested into Facebook or even go back into car companies back in the eighties, they'd make much more than they did if they were still doing what they had invested in instead of, instead of exiting. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, there's a hybrid that needs to happen for sure. Yeah. And I think, and I think the, the 10 year limit has been challenged. I think in the past few years, I think two years ago or one year ago, Sequoia just announced they're launching their evergreen fund, which means that their fund is now infinite lifetime. So like infinite number of years of the fund life cycle and investors investing that fund and that fund will so forth investing other smaller funds, such as like Sequoia India, I think it's about the $10 million fund. So Scott, what are your thoughts about yeah. this, this type of model? I think Sequoia nailed it. I, 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 I'm, I'm excited to see where they're going to be going with it. And if it works, it's obviously going to take time to see, but to do an, a, a, a non-ending non-term fund that has multiple offsprings that invest. And then that goes back into a general is, is fantastic. It gives everyone the opportunity to have longevity in terms of it. And that's, what's been missing. So I think Sequoia is taking, taking an excellent road on that and others need to follow it. It'll be interesting to see how they divvy up the sub funds to, to invest in that would then have exits and move it into, to their general fund. Right. And I think they're gonna, they're gonna learn a lot over probably the first five years of it and, and what's going to be there. But again, I think if you, if you sit back, I think also a, a general turn is going to happen from investments into, you know, average users per month to more advanced technologies and, and innovation. So to highlight that, I guess I'd say we're in a cyclical nature where back in the eighties and the nineties, companies were invested in because of what they were building from a technology, technological standpoint and how that would change the world. You look at Intel, you look at IBM, you look at Cisco, you look at VMware, all of those are absolutely necessary, right? For success. And this you know, Hey, I have an app and it's awesome to have companies that make all kinds of apps, but I have an app that I'm going to get people to use that is going to compete with a TikTok or a snap or a Facebook or an Instagram really is much more difficult. Now, right. Mm -hmm. But for raising money and, and having valuations, I mean, if you can figure out the next green energy to bring it back of, of how nuclear fusion can be advanced, you're, you're talking a trillion dollar company, right? If you're looking at how, you know, even on healthcare, which is problematic, but, you know, creating the next end to, to real end of, of some disease is a trillion dollar company. I think that's what we're going to see a shift happen to and a move away from an ad based model of, of applications. I think it's been over, it's been overwhelming for, for a decade. Yeah. Right. And the I, I just see a shift happening back to more tangible products that drive a need for society to, to better itself. Farming and agriculture, for example, right? Things, things like that are necessary. We got to feed people, we got to power people and we got to keep people healthy. Mm -hmm. That's where I see VC money going to. 
sustainable healthcare, sustainable farming, sustainable. Yeah. And there are a lot of VCs nowadays funding B2B apps, funding like SaaS companies, funding fintechs, and it's overwhelming and it's not a bad thing to, for sure. But like you said, Scott, no, yeah, there's less companies funding healthcare, less companies funding hardware. So how, how will the shift happen? Like how would eventually like, well, us be able to convince VCs to actually move into more of the problems that it's actually worth solving? Yeah. Well, I mean, if we take the recently signed Inflation Reduction Act, none of that can happen without that innovation in hardware, without that innovation in underlying science, if you, if you put it that way, right? And so majority of that 700 billion has to go to those next generational, amazing advancements in technology for us to, to move the world into a place. So that's just one example of why VCs are going to want that money, right? Companies are going to want that money. And for the government to say, hey, we're going to give it to you, but you got to show that this progress is going to happen. It's just, it's going to be a, it's going to be forced, I think, upon, right? And again, no, no offense to anything that is an application to bring people together or to share or to advance. The idea though, I think is over the next decade, if we're going to actually deal with the population we have and what we need to do even outside of, of, of earth as we explore space, it's, it's, it's hardware. And, and like I said, I, I'm absolutely believing that they're, they're trillion dollar companies. Cause if we look at those on a path to a trillion now, they are hardware companies. Mm -hmm. Amazon is, you know, it's, it's physical properties. It's physical assets, you know, Apple is nothing without its iPhone, right? You know, and, and, and it, you can just go on and on. So I, I see that happening. I'm, I'm excited about it because I think it's going to take a look at Gen Z and the generation after. They're going to be driven in school to understand what those game-changing technologies are rather than, no offense to young people, a TikTok video. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really exciting time, I think, for the youth. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned about Amazon and Apple, Scott. I think one other example that we might bring up is Meta, which is formerly Facebook. But I think one of the pain points they have is they don't actually have a hardware to keep people engaged on and they have to give their, like, their traffic to Apple and on Google. So they're, so they're right now trying to do the metaverse vision. What are your thoughts about metaverse? Yeah, that's a touchy <laughs> one, huh? So George, I would put it this way. I think they jumped the gun. Okay. I think the market's saying they jumped the gun a little okay. bit. I think you had people come in and say that, you know, Hey, I'm going to buy properties in this virtual world and, and they're getting slammed a bit now. And I think also we're underestimating the human nature of people to not miss being around people. So I, I think there's a place and and for the market, I think they jumped the gun maybe a, a little early. It'd be interesting to see where Meta goes, but Facebook has been amazing at keeping market share by its acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And I think it will need to continue that to, to improve in it. But uh, the, the one area I do see metaverse being absolutely wonderful is in the health sciences. I think that we'll hit a time where we have a capability for remote surgery by robotics mm -hmm. from a physician in Cleveland Clinic to a patient in Africa. And that is where that's going to become such an amazing application for education and advancements. So I think that's going to be really cool. Not buying property and going to a virtual <laughs> bar. I, I agree with that. I think the implication for healthcare is huge. So Scott, let's talk more about like jumping back into the VC space. In 2022, a lot of VCs are dying and a lot of VCs are not raising their second or third fund, just completely abandoning the yeah. notion. So like for our listeners, 
who are founders and maybe VCs, what's happening? Hmm. I think everyone's going to have a different, different opinion on this. I think, as, as you know, George, one of the main things VCs also have been lacking, and this is for the founders out there, is the number of those who have had an exit, whether successful or not, and some of the larger VC firms, they've, they've never, they've never been on the other side of the table. And I think it's time that maybe the tables were flipped. I, I think for founders, never, ever forget that you're interviewing a VC as well, right? They're interviewing you, but you're interviewing them and you can absolutely stand up and say, no, thank you. This is not a fit as well. No one needs to beg for dollars in this market. If you have a right product and you have a great team and you have the ability to execute, you will get money. It might take a year, right? But that's okay because in that year you've learned a lot and you might actually have revenue, which changes the game for you. But I think the, the VCs do need to get and stop recruiting, in my opinion, directly from Wharton and Stanford and, and others right out of finance and say, they're going to understand how to build a billion dollar company when you've never done it. And so I think that that's really critical to me that when we've taken investment dollars, it's always been from people who have had the experience on the other side of the table, because it is a nightmare. It's, it's, it's very harsh. And it's almost as though when someone says they're going to read your deck, they don't, mm -hmm. right? And when they say they want to understand you in the first 10 seconds, well, no one can understand anyone in the first 10 seconds. So those are, there's red flags for me with VCs and there's any investor. And when your, your mind hits that, I think you have to move on and say, Hey, it's not going to be there. Cause you know, when you hit it in the poem, you know, when you hit a home run, mm -hmm. right. You know, so, and I think that that gut is more important. Yeah. And I think 2022, I think many can say it's like a reset year for maybe venture funding yeah. and for VCs in general too. So like, what are your thoughts about how VCs can change fundamentally so that we can have a new generation of VCs starting with 2022? Yeah, I think it's a very good, very good question. And I think it's, it's, there's a thing that is obviously going around right now on, on diversity of funds and diversity of companies. And the thing that we forget is diversity actually at the end of the game is thought that you have diverse opinions and diverse perspectives and diverse ideas. Now that comes from being diverse backgrounds, whether it's race, gender, LGBTQ or whatnot, but it leads to the idea and what we need to have is diverse thought. And what VCs need to do as they're changing it to me is, is change their thought process again from being this rigid, you know, I need to hear from you, your MMR, your AUM, your this, your that right away and your product market fit and, and your run rate to, you know, looking again, deeper at what they're trying to solve and knowing that even what they're building right now might not be the solution that goes to market, but the idea is there. And then as long as the execution is there, I think that VCs can help their, um, their investments grow. It should not be a game of, I'm going to toss darts at a hundred things and expect five anymore. I think that needs to end. I think it needs to be precision. I think you should invest in things that, you know, 100% of them are going to go and you're going to put your heart and soul into helping those founders do it. That's it. It should not be a game of risk. They need to change it. It hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. and, and do you think some of the largest accelerators in the world that are strictly for profit are, do you think they're falling into that maze? Because we've seen, we've here. Hard founders like founder of Bolt accusing, for example, like Combinator of being throwing darts. So what are, like a lottery ticket type things, right? So what are your thoughts on that, Scott? Yep. Yeah, no, and it, it needs to get out of that as well. It's not a who you know, what you know scenario, and it's not a, 
I think part of the issues are absolutely that it's, it's a good old boys network to use the term, right? That, that never changes in VC land. And that needs to change because, you know, it, it's just not going to, it doesn't create innovation. And almost I'd use an example that it's much like a black hole that once you get in it, you really can't get out, right? No matter what. And I think the the sky needs to become the limit, not the black hole, what it's been. And if you look at everything today, you see so many innovative founders dying now because of the current times when we really hope they, they don't, because there is some amazing, amazing innovation and technology out there that simply cannot. And it's funny, they might only need a few million bucks, not a hundred. And I think that's the other thing, George, that needs to change is stop with the thesis that I'm only going to do 50 to $200 million investments. You're missing out. I think VCs need to have two stages only, early and growth. Mm -hmm. And you split your fund on that and you say, you know, yep, I'm going to give a million to 5 million on the early, and then I'll do 20 to 50 on the growth. But so many have missed out on that early stage because of that stupid part of the thesis that that needs to stop. That needs to stop. VC, you know, is, they actually need to change the name, right? <laughs> Venture capital is just too, it's got too much history with it. That's not, not always positive. So I think, you know, you just need to have early growth and, and late growth stage companies. Yeah. So. And two big pieces of news, I think this week and the past week, the first is Andreessen Horowitz, $200 million plus investments into former WeWork CEO, Adam Newman's new startup called Float. What are your thoughts, Scott, about, and it's one of the largest sizes ever written by Andrew Horowitz. Yep. So what, what's going on yep. and what are your thoughts? So I think Andreessen Horowitz, they made a calculated move on this. If you look at them in SoftBank, there was a large calculated move with WeWork and Adam. And there is, it would, you'd find me hard to find anyone that would actually say that WeWork was a failure but also that it was a success. I think that it was necessary and a wonderful product for the times. It still probably is given where we're coming back from the pandemic, but they made a bet on something because they got out early on the last one, right? And it's real easy and why SoftBank and SunSun doubled down as well. When we work at a high and it was worth $40 billion and then, you know, tens of billions were lost, the ones that got out, they didn't care, right? And so I feel... Some of these right now, again, if you shove, I think it's actually 350 million, George, that mm -hmm. they did in flow. If you shove that in to get a billion dollar valuation before one single thing has really been accomplished, you're going to try to drive that value up, get some exit out, and then the later people are the ones holding the bag. That's my fear on this one, because if you look at it, and it can be debatable, yes, the market needs to change for youth in terms of housing. Right. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with it. I don't think this, the, this approach is the way to go though. It seems a bit as a holding company for properties that might use tokenization to pay for bills, although that that's debatable too, even though. So I think, I don't know, that's a wait and see. I, I but they made a bet on someone they made a bet on before. And my guess is they're going to want to get out early mm -hmm. on that. Okay. And uh, not, not long. Yeah. Okay. Second big piece of news. I think you also mentioned it's SoftBank. So SoftBank reported a record 23.4 billion quarterly loss for Q2 of this year. And apparently they're already dumping their positions. So what, what, what do you think about SoftBank, Scott? Like they had a big vision fund and now they have vision fund too. So what yeah. went wrong or maybe what went right and wrong? 
Yeah. So I'll start off with I love SoftBank. Been knowing and, and working with them for a very long time. From days when I actually lived in Japan with Intel, um, you know, 20 some years ago. And I can tell you that they, their approach has been fantastic. What happened though, in my opinion, is they got into that rut of giving those large checks and were not able to get out in time. For example, they doubled down on WeWork, which was a surprising move a few years ago to me that they would have done that. That hurt them. That's part of that write-off. Um, you know, again, I just think that these companies need to get away from saying big bet, go home, home run all the time to, you know, sustainable growth where, you know, a few hundred percent is still fine and not 2000%. And it really protects the investment. SoftBank, I think is going to come out of it fine. Their backers, their investors from across the world are fantastic. They're not running out of cash. And over the years, over the 20 years, they've certainly had, so I'm not, I'm not too worried. They're, they're, they're fantastic. They're one that, that can weather this. Others, they can't, right? And Sun Sun, you know, amazing visionary to be able to pull it back. So what I expect to happen with SoftBank is they will start to invest in a different asset class at different numbers. Okay. So if we think about it, George, the best thing that's happening right now is I would call this the great reset of valuations. Mm-hmm. Okay. And no one, in my opinion, should raise a hundred million if you don't make a hundred million. Okay. Okay. Unless you're creating, again, nuclear fusion to get to Mars, which takes a lot of money before you can, different. But for the vast majority, 99% of companies, you don't need that kind of cash if you can't, if you aren't creating that already in profit. Yeah. And revenue. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting point. So Scott, like if you were to have an ideal fund opened, maybe let's say 2023 or 2024, what does that look like for you? What do you think your fund will look like? Hypothetically. Yeah. If I could magically wave a wand and put a hundred million dollars into a fund account right now, I think one of the first steps you do with your thesis is make it very well known to everyone. You know, you go to a lot of fund websites and it's confusing, right? It's almost as if they don't want you to know, which makes no sense to me because then you just get a bunch of people presenting to you that really never fit your thesis anyway. So I think first and foremost, you would publish the 10 things that matter and you would put a ranking to them. I think you need to, and the, and the 10 main points that matter to you. Number one, in my opinion, is always what is the revenue potential of this company in the first 12 months and the next 12 months after that. And if anyone can make a dollar in the first 12 months of a company, I think then that's something to pay attention to because it is hard. And if, if they're showing they can do that, then you got something that you can run with. And I think that's very important to the fund. The next is a lot of founders feel like they need to say, hey, I don't want to take too much right now. And it's not because of equity generally, it's because they're afraid to ask. I think every company, if it's going to be successful, does need one to 5 million to start with. You don't want to keep going back. You don't want to not hire and you don't want to grow as fast as you can. So I think that's very important to say, hey, I got one to five. The next part on the fund is I think all founders need to be able to come back to you and say, times got tight. It didn't work out. You know, it didn't work out because you're active with me. I need another million. I think there should always be a draw for a company if they're being successful because you don't want good things failing simply because some money ran out. So I think there always needs to be a 20% with any, any founder that you do a deal with to say, Hey, I got your back. 
Because it's not fair to say I'm going to give you money and I don't got your back. That's absolutely absurd. And that's been happening too. And then I think, I think lastly, you want to see that it's always about passion. Mm-hmm. And as long as people get excited about it and passion, I'd rather invest in people with passion than, you know, people with, with the brains for handling money. Mm-hmm. You, there, no offense to those folks, but we can, you can always find those. It's real hard to find passion. Real hard. So. Okay. Okay. And I think my last question, Scott, it's like for your company choir, what are your plans for yeah. it for the next maybe two to five years? Yeah. Awesome. And this is, a, this is a question everyone gets, right? Mm-hmm. My plan is this. I want everyone, number one, excited about energy from whether they're at home, they're at school, or they're doing it. And I want them to know that they can manage it effectively and they can make change. There's been a bunch of BS around carbon reduction, carbon offsets and, and the climate. And, and a lot of it is not audible. It's not traceable. And it's not real, right? You can toss numbers out all day long, but I want to now, I want choir to be able to be the company that actually shows the real granular impact of everything we do on the environment, whether positive or negative. And a long-term side, look, I want choir to be acquired. Mm-hmm. That's okay. it. It is a goal within three years or less, and, and we, were, we will achieve it. But we will only do it after we hit our revenue target, which is getting to a run rate of recognized revenue of at least $40 million. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's super amazing, Scott. Thanks for coming on to the show today. Thanks for sharing your thoughts about VCs. Nope. And share more about Choir. Thanks so much. George, it's been great, man. Thank you very much. Anytime. Builders Build, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Builders Build content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.